0: John Worth, I'm here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated tennis podcast. We have Novak Djokovic taking the lead, the number one ranking for 311 weeks, which catapults him past Roger Federer's record. Roger Federer is back in action. We have events in the Middle East, in Europe, in South America, in Mexico today. Though our guest is a United States tennis executive. It's Mike Douse. He is the CEO and executive director of the usda he took the job in late 2019 and as he tells us 75 days in COVID hits and it was a much different first year there was however some silver lining one of them was the staging of the 2020 us open Um, also tennis participation has gone up 22 percent year over year Uh, a lot of that of course owes to covid socially distanced sport Uh, we all have extra time on our hands but uh, tennis participation rates in the u.s surging which is great news so we talk about that we talk about how to build on that um, on that encouraging news and we talk about professional tennis to what extent do we need tennis pros to spark participation the women's side is doing its share Uh, men less so do we need connor's McEnroe, Sampras, Agassi, Courier, Chang. Do we need players like that to spur more participation? So uh, it's a good conversation. We wind up talking about the 2021 U.S. Open. Guarded optimism is the catchphrase there. Uh, so here's a fun conversation with Mike Douse, CEO and executive director of the U.S.T.A. How are you? Where are you? How are you doing? I'm in Orlando today at our campus,
1: and I've uh, been working out of here for uh, the last few months.
0: Oh, you have. You you uh, you relocated down there.
1: I did, yep. and uh, I think our campus is a uh, microcosm of of, this, of our tennis world right now. Our public, our local programming's up and busy, but anything that involves travel and international or, or you know, a national play is, is not happening yet.
0: Uh, let's we'll, we'll we'll get to that, and we'll get to uh, what what this U.S. Open looks like. Uh, thanks, Bert. Where, where are you at today, John? Uh, I'm home in New York uh, for a few days, anyway um try, trying to stay off the road but it's not it's not working out so well uh've been, been traveling a bunch lately but uh yeah it's I don't know if you've been have you been up here much I mean things are things are getting better I gotta say
1: I haven't been there since the tournament actually and there I wasn't really there right I was in we called up the Lynn the long Island Marriott and yeah, exactly. center and that was it I couldn't go anywhere I was locked down
0: um we are uh well we'll we'll, we'll get there we're Sort of guardedly optimistic, uh, we'll be in a different place this year. Um, but let's let's start with the good news. So we're in the middle of the Australian Open. We get a we all get a release and some phone calls from the USTA um, with the survey data. The participation was up. What was it? Twenty two percent, I believe.
1: Right, which yeah, the,
0: is not insignificant.
1: No, the, it's called the PAC study, which is the Physical Activity Council, and they. Study. I think it's dozens, if not hundreds, of sports, and tennis came out as one of the the leaders in 2020 in participation growth. It was uh, four million new players, so roughly 17 million to 21 million people played tennis last year.
0: And uh, you know, let's let's stress that you did not commission this. Uh, this was this was independent. Um, I mean, I guess the the assumption is COVID played a significant role here. Is, is there more to it than that?
1: No, absolutely. I mean. The silver lining to COVID is it did uh, open people's awareness to tennis. And we say, just think about it when we were, I call it hibernating or or, uh, quarantining, what's everything we missed, right? We missed friends, which was socialization. We missed physical exercise. uh, And we even missed intellectual stimulation and tennis provides all that. So I think once it was confirmed that tennis balls don't transmit the the virus and that it was safe to get out and play tennis, it just skyrocketed, and uh, so it's been positive. Do we,
0: know, uh, do we know more about that data with age groups or what parts of the country or what the circumstances were?
1: They're still drilling down on it. Um, so the numbers we released were the, what they call the top line results. We do know through the uh, uh, TIA, the Tennis Industry Association, that junior tennis rackets were up nearly 30% in sales last year. So we know a big chunk of those new players were definitely young, young players.
0: How, how, do we, how do we parlay that? How, how do we uh, get these people to stick around or get them to uh, accelerate how often they're playing?
1: That's the big question, right? And uh, we're optimistic we can do it. Um, we're working closely, we maybe to back up to give us some context. And, John, I think you remembered this, when the pandemic hit, It actually was the worst case scenario, right? All our facilities were closed. Our teaching professionals were out of business. We did a survey. and It was 92% of tennis facilities were closed. Gosh, it was almost a year ago to maybe next week or the end of this month, March. And we got the industry together, it was called the TIU, and this was the alphabet soup of tennis. It was all the teaching professional organizations, collegiate tennis, the manufacturers, and we all came together and ended up putting grants in place. To help these clubs and these teaching pros and coaches get through not having work and customers coming in Um, and now we're taking that same approach to engaging these players so we need the industry to be here ready to receive them give them great lessons great programs get over that learning curve that sometimes is a little steep for new players and once they get through that we're really confident they'll they'll realize tennis is a sport for the life you know sport of a lifetime where
0: are you on, on getting players to, I mean, I think that's something that tennis is, you know, I, I don't know, struggling with, but th- this is tend- this seems to be this realization that this sport's really hard and that uh, the, the learning curve, like you say, the learning curve is steep. What, what, do, you, what do you support? What, what do you advocate for in terms of getting k- kids especially to stick around with a sport that doesn't always pay immediate dividends?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, John. I think one thing we've learned in the last year, there's not one way to enjoy tennis. And we don't want to be too prescriptive on that. Uh, and what we're saying around the halls of the USTA is, you know, we used to be a very program-based uh, organization, and we want to be a service-based organization. And what that means is providers, those people that provide tennis to people. There's so many great ways for people to enjoy tennis. We want to be able to service the whole tennis ecosystem and allowing them to do that. Some kids, we have the red, orange, green balls, if you're familiar with that, you know, which are the low compression balls that make the sport easier. There's cardio tennis for people who wanna go out and just have physical uh, exercise during tennis. There's social leagues, there's competitive tournaments. So I think the key is making it's awareness, making sure all these new players know there's just so many ways to enjoy our sport, not just a rigid tournament or structured league play. You
0: can talk about the challenges in a second but what else do you take as a sign of optimism what what else are you uh, pleased about or see as a, a positive trend
1: i would say you know i john you know that 2020 was my first year and one of if i look back one of the highlights and reflections i have is when the crisis hit everyone came together and i went on a pretty extensive uh listening tour before the pandemic hit and i not one group out there that I find didn't have a passion for growing the sport and making it happen, and there was a lot of similarities that people were sharing, but they were all working separately. And we really brought everyone together. So that's one thing I'm most optimistic about. And and I'm gonna call you on this, John, because as we're getting ready for the call today, I was remembering the Sports Illustrated article in the early '90s where the cover said "Is Tennis Dying?" And it was a fair article, right? Tennis participation was was going down dramatically. And reporting has taken us too many years, but here we are in 2021, and we're looking for the next cover to say is, is tennis booming again. I
0: think we need to revisit. But for the record, I uh, that that predated me. I will uh, I'll throw uh, Sally Jenkins, the great Sally Jenkins, under the bus. But um, no, I mean I, I think some. If you go back and read that article, I I think. Um, A lot of those issues, honestly, have been addressed. There are other challenges that have sprung up. I mean, that was already—I think it was '94. I mean, that was you know more than 20 years ago. But um, you know, I I think one thing that's interesting about that story is it shows that sports evolve and sports change, and and new new challenges pop up and old challenges get solved. Um, When that story was written, one of the things it addressed, which I thought was was fairly prescient, was the decline in U.S. players. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean the other way to frame that of course is tennis is wonderfully global and and the field is flattened and the world is flattened. W- what is the relationship as you see it between top U.S. players especially on the men's side and popularity slash participation? I mean do, do we need Chang Curry or Agassiz Sampras? Do we need McEnroe Connors to grow the sport at a recreational level?
1: Oh I think it's all connected absolutely. I think having great American champions Drive other kids to enter the sport. I think we agree that Venus and Serena played a great role in inspiring so many young girls 15, 20 years ago to get into professional tennis, or to take that career towards professional tennis. And we're starting to see it pay off with huge success on the women's side. Uh, we need to replicate that on the men's side. So to me, it, it's it's a push and pull approach. You know, at the grassroots level, we need millions of new kids playing because it's a numbers game. You know, the more kids we get playing, the better athletes. Uh, come to the sport, the better chance we have for, for American champions. And on the other side, uh, with big American champions, they inspire kids to play. So we, we have to approach it from both sides. It's not either or. It's kind of how we're looking at it.
0: What are some specific things uh, that you can do? I mean, if, I, I think you're right. Let's, let's assume for participation's sake, it's, it's a numbers game and you get 100 talented 10-year-olds. You have a better chance of developing than if you have 50 of them. What is tennis doing to get to those athletic kids right before they've got to make a choice of what sport they want to pursue?
1: For sure. I think the first thing is awareness and exposure. Uh, I think we agree that sometimes our, our, our sport, uh, unfortunately is perceived as an elitist sport and expensive. And We have to break down that misconception about our sport. If you think about the number of public courts we have out there and public facilities, uh, almost nearly every high school in our country has tennis courts. Our public parks have thousands of tennis courts. Uh, so access to those is relatively inexpensive or free and you can get a great tennis racket at a mass merchant for $40, $50 and a can of tennis balls still to the much of the chagrin of the manufacturers is still around 2 to $3 a can. Yeah. So it's still a relatively inexpensive sport to get into it. You know, we're not uh, also kidding ourselves. It does get expensive like all sports as it gets more competitive. But, uh, you know, through our player development group and our 17 sections, we feel like we have programs in place that people can still compete keep it relatively affordable and know that it, it's a, it's a great pathway whether you become a top 10 player in the world whether you play collegiate tennis or if you just play recreation your, your whole life there's there's no downside to starting that journey as a young kid and ultimately seeing where it takes you I, I was talking
0: to uh, the, the football coach in Indiana who said uh, you know this is this is a basketball state but a, a kid goes out and he says hey I'm, I'm only six foot one I'm probably never going to be a basketball player and he says yeah but Six, one, and you're an athlete, you, you could be a great cornerback. You could be a great wide receiver for me. Um, what is tennis doing to sort of play that same game with, uh, with other kids? I mean, obviously, I think we need to distinguish and differentiate between men and women and boys mm-hmm. and girls. I mean, g- girls and, and women's tennis is quite strong. Uh, it's really the men. What, what, um, what is the USTA doing to get that, that 10-year-old kid who's deciding between basketball and another sport and getting him to try
1: tennis? I think the first thing we have to be part of that conversation when it starts to happen. So it's awareness and accessibility. So, and both those start can start with the families and with the schools and the public parks. So we just have to throw a much broader net and not just talk to those kids that are at private facilities. So one of our big investments and in, in areas of focus, again, are public parks and, and schools. So we can get tennis in there as part of the curriculum when they're young, and get them in the, in the public park programs when they're young, uh, then we have an opportunity to get those kids exposed to sport and then really uh, speak to the benefits of tennis as it truly is the sport of a lifetime. It doesn't stop once you leave high school. You can continue to play the rest of your life.
0: What is the USTA's um, sort of relationship with respect to pickleball? Which uh, is a question I get I get asked all the time. I just saw it uh, in... California, when we were out there for, for tennis channel, what is the USTA's position vis-a-vis this new sport that seems to have really found some popularity?
1: I'm a fan of pickleball. I think the biggest enemy of tennis is inactivity and obesity. You know, it starts in a much bigger picture. We have to get our society and kids in particular active. And anything that gets people active, it's so much easier. The research will show you to convert an active person to tennis as opposed to an inactive person. And to me, tennis, excuse me, pickleball was seen as a sport that people would exit tennis and move to pickleball as maybe they got older and needed a smaller court, but we're starting to see now it's also a gateway to tennis. Um, Again, you can have a rally relatively quick in in pickleball. You play in shorter courts. If you master that, it's a great gate uh, pathway into tennis. So we're actually, I'm looking out my windows here at the USTA National Campus. We're building pickleball courts right now. We're actually even adding some Padel courts uh, in a few months. We feel anything around racket sports is good for tennis. And on top of that, think about all the facilities out there. They're always looking for new uh, revenue streams. Pickleball can provide that, which helps tennis clubs stay in business, which is good for our sport. So I, I think the long answer is, John, we're, we're fans of anything uh, around racket sports and pickleball included.
0: I, I, I've said, for a while, I, I always felt like the, the biggest change since I've started covering tennis in the U.S., it, it's not the drop-off in players, especially on the men's side, but it's been the drop-off of events that, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think right now there are more events in China than in the U.S., and the, it's gone down. At one point, it was by more than half. Um, where's the USTA on this, and are there plans for additional tournaments um, in the United States?
1: Yeah, I mean... We agree, we need more tournaments in the United States. And of course, we can't just unilaterally do that. We have to work really closely with the ATP and WTA to make that happen. Uh, I mentioned earlier how the industry came together on the grassroots side during the pandemic. Uh, The same can also be said on the professional side. You can imagine how closely we had to work with the ATP and the WTA to pull off Cincinnati and the US Open. And we're having a regular dialogue with them about reinventing the calendar and looking at different tournaments and different locations. Um, So that's something we're very focused on is is making sure we have as many of those tournaments in the US as we can.
0: What about college tennis? This was a good year. 2020 was a good year for uh, tennis participation and tennis at a recreational level. It was a rough year for college tennis. A number of programs were, were cut with the declining revenues in college sports. What's the USTA's position in terms of uh, sort of protecting these college programs?
1: It's really gotten elevated. As you mentioned, we lost a lot of programs at the start of the pandemic and no one likes to see that. I'm a former college tennis player and I know how important college tennis is to our ecosystem. Uh, I think one thing that we've really discovered through this is that tennis can actually be a revenue generating sport for these universities and colleges. Um, And we're In the process of building something, we call these these tennis, or excuse me, these universities have great tennis centers. But if we can make them great tennis communities, it completely changes the whole look of tennis on on campus. Can these tennis facilities be open year round to all the student body, to the local communities, to camps, to tennis socials? And if you look at it through that lens, all of a sudden these tennis facilities start generating revenue for the school that they might not normally have. So we're putting a team against that. And uh, we've already met with 55 colleges over the last 90 days. And we have pro formas for them that show that they can start making money off tennis. And it's really gaining a lot of interest from these athletic directors. So hopefully we, we found a formula here that can help save college tennis. I, I mean, I think, that's,
0: I think that's really significant because that's the first thing the athletic directors say. Listen, I, I have nothing against tennis. It's just a dollars and cents thing. Um, Is there any program you point to? Is there a particular campus where they've been able to turn a profit that you can highlight?
1: Yeah, there's some. uh, I'll I'll follow up the list for you, but I've had three calls just last week. We talked to Arizona State. They're looking at coming up with a real robust program that will include the whole community of Phoenix. Uh, I know Columbia University is reimagining their tennis center, and I believe it was Old Dominion as well who's kicked off this tennis community concept. But we're really excited about it. in the early phases, but we think it has
0: some legs. Do, do you have feelings about um, this, sort of the, the flood of international players in college tennis? I mean, it used to be, for example, that the U.S. Open gave a wild card to the NCAA champion, and that, uh, that, that has stopped at least being done automatically because so often these players were not American kids or products of the USTA. Where do you stand on that in this internationalization of college tennis?
1: Yeah, it's a complicated topic, but I think if you can really step back. We do live in a global society right now. We've got to teach our kids to compete at the highest level on a, on a global level. And I think it's something that uh, has already taken place and we're not gonna be put that genie back in the bottle. So I think ultimately the solution to it is getting millions of new players in the US playing. So all of a sudden we start populating these team with American players. But by putting restrictions against international players, I think that's a short-term fix, and we don't really address the issue, which is we haven't had enough American kids playing college tennis, or excuse me, playing tennis in general, that they can move up to the collegiate level. So,
0: so tell me more about the points of entry to get kids playing. I mean, are these, is this PE class? Is this, I mean, I think you're right that dispelling the notion that this is an expensive sport I think is, is critical. What are the other entry points in terms of uh, get, getting young kids to just get a racket in their hand and get out there?
1: I mean, I'm the biggest proponents of the schools and public parks. I think that's where we're gonna have the the broadest effect and the the widest reach. Um, Schools are are where the kids um, can be exposed to it. And we're putting together great curriculum for PE teachers that you don't have to be a tennis professional or a tennis coach to teach tennis. We have a real nice curriculum. And if you think about it in soccer and baseball and whatnot. We hand mom or dad a clipboard and call them coach, right? And they're out there helping the kids. And and we kinda in the past at tennis said, Hey parents, let, let the professionals teach tennis. And I just disagree with that. I think parents can get out there and create a positive environment for kids to play the sport. There's a time in the pathway where they move to more certified professional coaches, but early on it's all about having fun and socializations with their friends and just getting them active. And that's gonna happen again in the schools and public parks.
0: I was I was joking about your uh, Zoom backdrop, but uh, it, 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 has me, it has me envious. I, I see, you know, this is, this is an audio medium, so people can't see this, unfortunately. But this is a packed stands. It's a night session. It's a U.S. Open. I see Deloitte, and I see Chase, and I see a Mercedes decal on the net, and I see, you know, it looks to be Roger Federer's racket bag behind you. Mm-hmm. Um, how long do we get back till we get back to that? What, what do you anticipate the 2021 U.S. Open
1: looking like? Well, the term we're using, John, is cautiously optimistic, and maybe even stronger than cautiously optimistic. I mean, we're fortunate, as you know. Last year we weren't the last slam to go, but this year we're the last slam to go, being the fourth slam coming in August, September, and you know the way things are looking now, it, it's you know I've heard uh, some of the uh, gosh was it uh, someone just recently announced they're going to have full fans this summer? I'm drawing a blank on who that is, um, but. Uh, we're optimistic based off the numbers we're seeing. I mean, at a bare minimum, we'd say 25% fans, that would be social distancing, but we think it can be much better than that. And it really starts becoming the energy that we know at the U.S. when we start getting 50, 75% capacity again. And it just feels like it's going to happen this year. I I mean, I I think you get, uh, I think you get 25% if you started
0: tomorrow. So uh, that's, so, so that's, I mean, you know, provided nothing crazy happens. That's, uh, That's a good sign. What else do you anticipate? I mean, the player. Obviously, there was the sort of this quasi bubble on Long Island, and we were joking about the uh, the Laguardia Marriott, where all the action went down, and there was no media. I mean, what? uh, Give us another sense of sort of. Give us an additional sense of what uh, what this is going to feel like and look like.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're running multiple scenarios still. And last year we said we had three guiding principles: that would be, you know, it was the health and well-being of everyone first. Number two, is this good for tennis to host the tournament? And three, does it financially make sense? And as we look at 2021, I don't see those three guiding principles changing. Right? As long as we can make sure we maintain the health and well-being of everyone, and that'll be our lens on determining how many fans come through. And of course, with with government input. number two we know it's going to be good for tennis and then if we can pull this thing off it's going to be good financially for the usta which then allows us to fund the mission so that's how we're approaching it again Um, but we're having weekly meetings we're already talking to the wta and the atp and and everyone else involved to to make sure we can pull this thing off again
0: if my math is right i mean i think after the u.s open 2019 there were were rumors and you you were announced i believe in the fall maybe even early winter my math is right, you had about 90 days of, uh, of normal before, uh, before COVID. I mean, what's, what's this been like for you?
1: Yeah, it's been a wild ride. I think it was day 73 in the job that the, the pandemic hit. Uh, and so it has been a wild ride. But again, uh, we step back. I think the things I learned from it are the USTA cannot be this mandating organization telling everyone how to do everything. We had to come together and work with everyone to get through it. And on two fronts, we did that with the grassroots side, the USPTA, the PTR, the ITA, TIA, and the ATA. We formed this tennis industry united, and we, we, we still meet monthly. And, and that group, what's really interesting about that group, it started all about COVID and helping us get through COVID as a sport. But now that we've gotten through it, we've come up with two new initiatives, and we're keeping the group together. And those two new, two new initiatives are advocacy for tennis. So kind of what you were asking about earlier, getting the word out that tennis is a great sport. And number two is we're trying to drive uh, diversity and inclusion in our sport. So we've got two great initiatives there. And then on the pro side, uh, again, I mentioned earlier, we meet constantly on a regular basis with our peers at the other Grand Slams. And now the ATP, ITF, and WTA are part of those two. We're calling that group the T7, which are kind of the seven governing bodies of tennis. So finally,
0: give me your sort of craziest, most outside the box uh, idea for. I mean, we've we've heard in recent years that that we need a tennis video game or we need tennis's version of Caddyshack. What is something just beyond uh, sort of beyond convention that you're thinking about that uh, might help grow the sport?
1: Well, I'm a huge fan. I talked about it through the uh, context of collegiate tennis about building ten, tennis communities, but I think that's true for facilities, all facilities, private and public, that that's when we really win, when we're part of a tennis community. And I joke, or a club I play at, we never call it a tennis club, we call it a bar with tennis courts, because people show up there to socialize and have fun. And when we get that formula right, then that's when tennis really takes off. It really starts to, to be part of people's everyday lifestyle. Their, their kids are there playing, their families there there playing, their friends are there playing. And that's back in the, the heyday of the tennis boom, that's what tennis was all about. It was part of our social fabric and part of our culture. And hopefully coming out of this pandemic, tennis will be that again for our society. You wish it
0: did not take a global pandemic to get here, but uh, you, you, you can brag about 22% growth uh, in your first year on the job. That's pretty good.
1: I don't know if I have anything to do with that job, but uh, it's sure nice to see. And it's fun to see everyone uh, getting out you drive by a public court right now, you'll see the courts are full.
0: Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the challenge is now to keep those, people, uh, keep those people playing and keep them engaged. But uh, that, that 22% is, you know, you're, so somebody said, you know, we're, we're used to a hockey stick. You know, we're used to sort of this drop from the tennis boom, and then sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. But this, uh, this is a nice uptick. So uh, we'll see if we can keep it going.
1: Absolutely. I'm confident we will.
0: All right. I want uh, ne- next time we speak, I don't, I don't want that backdrop. Uh, I want, I want real twenty-five thousand fans behind you. But
1: uh, I'm confident to, uh, we're going to be in New York together this year instead of virtually. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, uh, I
0: appreciate it. Good catching up, and uh, you know, again, I, I don't want to say congrats given the circumstances, but um, that's a significant rate of growth. So uh, lo- long may that continue after we're all vaccinated.
1: Agree. Well, thanks, John, and uh, we'll be in touch. You got it. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. Take care. Bye. All right. Thanks to Mike Douse. Uh, enjoyed
0: that conversation. Uh, again, you could not see it, but his Zoom backdrop was uh, full stands at uh, at Arthur Ashe at the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center. Um, if only we could reprise that uh, Labor Day weekend. Um, thanks for a good conversation. Thanks to Jamie. Thanks to you all for listening. Keep the guest suggestions coming. A reminder, we are doing all the post-game coverage from uh, these many, many events. We will be on Tennis Channel after the matches every night. Uh, keep the guest suggestions coming. We have uh, an author on the way and a player once uh, he returns to the United States. And um, we'll have another one of these in seven days. All right. Have a good week, everyone.